Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you tonight. Good to be with you tonight. And uh, it's a privilege, as always, to preach and teach the Word of God. And pastors up at camp and having a good time, I'm sure, listening to the Word. As a preacher who used to be in his shoes, preaching every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, Wednesday night, Bible studies, and etc. It's always good to sit and listen for a while, and I'm sure he's really enjoying that. And I feel um, honored that he asked me to share the word tonight with you. So to begin with, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. I have always liked baseball. It's my favorite sport. And as a boy, I collected baseball cards. We were, I grew up on a farm, so I had about an hour bus ride to school every day in the morning and again at night. And the guys, us young boys, we brought with us our stack of baseball cards and we showed them to each other and traded and things like that. And of course, I had all the heroes back then, you know, uh, Willie Mays and Willie McCovey and Harmon Killebrew and Rocky Calavito and, and on and on and on. And like many boys in the late 50s and early 60s, my favorite team was the Yankees because the Yankees were winners and, you know, young boys like to follow the winners. And so I, I liked the Yankees. I followed them and I was enamored with their players and really looked up, as a lot of boys did, to Mickey Mantle, of course. He was kind of the epitome of the all-American boy, blonde, handsome, athletic, and famous, and very productive as a baseball player. And it seemed like Mickey Mantle had it all. And you think that when you're young and you look up to these guys, I learned later after he retired and went on into life that he really had a lot of struggles, a lot of difficulties, and you know, his life fell apart, his marriage fell apart, his health fell apart, and he was interviewed from time to time, and I remember him saying specifically in an interview, if you had a message, you know, what would you send to the young people today? And he said, well, one, one thing I would tell them is, don't be like me. And uh, I just remember that being sort of a sad statement by the once great Mickey Mantle. And of course, as I grew older and as a Christian too, I learned that even as you look up to pastors and, and deacons and Sunday school teachers and older people and older Christians, uh, Sometimes they can let you down too. Sometimes they can really throw you for a loop because of something they, they do. I remember as a, as a boy as well, uh, we, we had a pastor at the time that, uh, that fell into some moral failure and, and I just remember being very devastated by that as a young boy and, and uh, I learned, like the rest of you, I guess, that the only safe role model is Jesus. Amen. 
He is the one that we are to look to. He is the one who is tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He is the one whom the Bible says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so tonight, I would like us to think about that. Just be like Jesus. There's a plaque in our living room that says, of all the things you would like to be, be like Jesus. James Rowe wrote a hymn years ago, and it said, Be like Jesus, this my song, in the home and in the throng. Be like Jesus all day long. I would be like Jesus. I hope that that's your desire tonight. That's where we're going in the message. But we need to ask the question, what was Jesus like? If I'm supposed to be like Jesus, what was Jesus like, and what should then I be like? So we're going to look tonight at five characteristics that we find of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully we will be instructed and inspired to be more like Jesus. A quick moment of prayer. Father, I ask that you would just open our hearts and our eyes of understanding and help us to be ready to receive these truths tonight because this is next to your heart. We just read from scripture that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of your son. That is where we're headed. Someday we will be like him for we will see him as he is. But in the meantime, you want us to become more and more like him. And he should be our object of focus and devotion. I pray that you would have your way in these special moments. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen. In Psalm 45, note with me verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, this might seem sort of a strange passage in some ways, maybe even stranger to the Old Testament saints who, of course, were instructed in monotheism, there is only one God. And the Hebrew confession of faith was found, of course, in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But in this passage, does it not seem to you like God is talking to God? And that's exactly what's happening here. God the Father is talking to God the Son. And he says, therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than, the, more than your companions. Of course, we New Testament Bible-believing Christians are Trinitarians. And we understand that God is one, but he is also three. And... He is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
how he expresses himself in three persons. We see that at the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit descended from heaven in the form of a dove and that the heavens opened and the voice of the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So all three members of the Trinity are clearly delineated there. And just before Jesus went back to heaven and he gave the great commission, he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there are many places in scripture where we see the three persons of the Godhead converging together and sometimes conversing together. And of course, right in the first chapter of the Bible, you have God saying amongst himself, let us make man in our image. Again, conversationally, we see the Trinity right there in the first chapter of scripture. And here we see God the Father talking to God the Son. It's repeated in the New Testament in Hebrews 1 verses 8 and 9, almost an exact um, replica of the verses we just read in Psalm. And when we ask the question, what was Jesus like? We find from this passage that he is anointed by his father with the oil of gladness more than his companions. Jesus Christ, unlike many portrayals of him, being very somber, very long-faced, Jesus was a very cheerful, radiant, warm, inviting, magnetic sort of a man. If you were in a room with Jesus, he lit up the room with his gladness. He was anointed with gladness more than all of his companions. The priests and kings of the Old Testament, of course, were anointed with olive oil. And we oftentimes think of oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And we are to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, which is, among other things, joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. And if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to be obviously infused by the spirit of gladness, by the spirit of joy. I've watched quite a number of portrayals of Jesus in over the years, and my favorite one is the Visual Bible. I don't know if you've seen that. The Visual Bible, uh, you can get it in Christian bookstores and libraries, maybe still. It was out for the first time probably 15 years ago, and there was a Christian actor by the name of Bruce Marciano who 
played the character of Jesus, and to me, it's the best portrayal of Jesus I've seen anywhere. And he, he, he filled this description in the way he acted that part. Sure, there were very serious uh, parts, and it was the Gospel of Matthew word for word, so uh, it was all the persecution and the scourging and crucifixion and all those things as well. But Jesus was anointed with gladness. He was a joyful person. How are you doing on being like Jesus in that, er in that regard? Some said, someone said, I wrote this down years ago, some Christians have such long faces, they look like they've been pulled through a picket fence, baptized in pickle juice, and weaned on vinegar. <laughs> we might sing, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, but maybe some of us need to let it come up and show on our face, do you suppose? I've always been impressed by the description of Nehemiah when it says, as Nehemiah is recounting there early on in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, I had never been sad in the king's presence before. And so he was sad that day because he had gotten a bad report of how things were going back in Jerusalem. The walls were torn down and burning and everything was destroyed. And it made him so sick at heart that he came in before the king for the first time and, and, and had a sad countenance. And the king couldn't help but notice this was not Nehemiah. This was not the normal thing for him. It shouldn't be the normal thing for us to have that long face. We are human and we are going to have those times. And believe me, we've, we've all been there. But what do people, what do your coworkers, what do your neighbors, what do your family members see when they see you, when they look at you? What does your heavenly father see? What do the principalities and powers see? I've been enamored with a verse in Ephesians. I'll just read it to you. Ephesians 3.10 says to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Do you realize that we as the church of Jesus Christ are manifesting God's wisdom to the principalities and powers? Even the good angels and the bad angels are learning the wisdom of God through those of us who make up the church of Jesus Christ. I just want to encourage you to think about this and seek to be more like Jesus in this department. You think about the early church and over in Norwalk I've been filling in as interim pastor over there. And so we start on Easter Sunday in the book of Acts and we've just been going through the book of Acts. And uh, 
wow, that first century church, um, 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost, baptized, added to the church, continued steadfastly in apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayer. And it says a number of times how they had joy and gladness and ate their food with singleness of heart. And they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They were magnetic. They were electric almost. They just eluded the praise and power of God. That was the first century church. What about the 21st century church? That's us. I don't know if the name Merle Booth means anything to anybody here because I'm one of the older ones now. Pastor Hope recognizes the name. But I love Merle Booth. And as a young pastor, had him speak in our church, uh, three different series of meetings down here in Iowa. Then we moved to Minnesota, had him come a couple times up there. He was from California, but he kept a car and, and uh, Airstream trailer in Des Moines, and then he'd fly out here and do a, a, a circuit in the Midwest as well. And every time I could get him, I, I got Merle Booth. He was just one of those guys that just eluded the joy of the Lord, and he was a one-armed preacher, singer, evangelist. At the age of 13, he was roller skating down the, the sidewalk in Washington, Iowa, and a drunk driver came up over the curb and hit him, and he lost his arm as a 13-year-old boy. But Merle Booth could tie a shoe faster than I could with, he did it with one hand, and he was, he played golf, he was just one of those joyful guys. I remember taking him to a, a bakery there in Hibbing, Minnesota, and uh, we were just, you know, picking up a couple things there, and the girl behind the counter's name was Shirley. And uh, he saw that her name was Shirley, and he just kind of broke out in, Surely goodness and mercy shall fall. And she just smiled, and I thought, Merle, you are great. You just find a way to bring gladness wherever you are. He had a saying, Some aren't happy unless they're miserable. I'm going to be happy even if it makes me miserable. Anointed with gladness. If we're going to be like Jesus, we must have the joy of the Lord in our hearts and I think even get up to our faces. The second thing we notice about Jesus, we go to Isaiah chapter 53. Again, prophesied 700 years before Jesus was born. A very well-known passage not allowed to be read in most synagogues because it is so clear of whom it is speaking, they don't want to admit that Isaiah was talking about Jesus of Nazareth. But in Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 1, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he has grown up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he was borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. What was Jesus like? Well, we already have seen that he was anointed with gladness. He outwardly exuded the joy of the Lord. But he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Anointed with gladness, but acquainted with grief. I don't think Jesus was going around hunched shoulders, long-faced, melancholy expression. But he was acquainted with grief and aptly called a man of sorrows. Here in Isaiah, if you flip forward to chapter 61, there's another reference that goes along with this. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. One of the ministries of Jesus was and is to heal the brokenhearted. I remember hearing a wise older preacher say when I was a very young pastor, Never forget, fellas, speaking to us pastors, he said, never forget, there's a broken heart in every pew. And I tried not to forget that as I was teaching and preaching the word. And uh, I've always kind of had the tendency over the years to to maybe preach more law than grace, I'm not sure, but just try to get people you know, fired up and right with God and doing what they ought to do. And, and, and I, I just, as time went on, the Lord helped me to understand that there's more to it than that. People need encouragement. People need comfort. And there are brokenhearted people that need healing. And Jesus was one who would weep with those who weep. He was acquainted with grief. Psalm 147.3 says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Remember, he came to Mary and Martha when they had lost their brother Lazarus. And he came to the tomb. And the shortest verse in the Bible Jesus wept. Paul was all alone in prison toward the end of his life and ministry. And he told Timothy, sadly, at my first defense, no one stood with me. But he said, nevertheless, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Our Savior is acquainted with grief. I was pretty well acquainted with grief, pastoring for 36 years, sat with a lot of people in their losses. And then, as the Lord had it, I was a hospice chaplain for six years, and I dealt with death on a daily basis and sat with people that were losing their loved ones. 
I was supposed to, as a hospice chaplain, be an expert on grief. And I was told that when I took the position, and so I bought a bunch of books on grief, and I thought I knew quite a bit about it anyway, but well, I shouldn't even say that, but I read and I, I studied and I researched and I did grief workshops and grief counseling and sat with those who were grieving many times. And then, semi-retired in Altoona, Iowa. And uh, Jenny and I moved here a couple years ago and then the Lord took her home. And all of a sudden, I wasn't sitting with somebody else in their grief, I was grieving and it was pretty close to home. And uh, I found out that the Lord is right there and he's faithful, he stands with us, he intercedes for us and uh, he's listening to our prayers. The world really doesn't know how to deal with grief, but we can always go to Jesus and he heals the brokenhearted. He works with everybody individually on his own timetable. We can't dictate to him what to do or how to do it or when to do it, but we can trust him. And I think if we want to be like Jesus, it's good for us to be acquainted with grief and have the ministry of presence at least. If somebody loses someone, we send cards, we write letters, we make phone calls, visits, and we just tell people that we care and we love them and, and that we are grieving with them and we're weeping with those who weep. Now, we move on to brighter subjects and other things about Jesus, and let's go to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and we'll see that another th characteristic of Jesus is that he advanced the gospel. He was always advancing the gospel. In Matthew chapter 9, another well-known passage, we read at the end of Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness, every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's so encouraging, inspiring to see how Jesus, everywhere he went, he advanced the gospel. He advanced the gospel. And we find him here amongst the multitudes, seeing their actual spiritual condition, and is moved with compassion for them. He's teaching everywhere he goes, in their villages and synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. 
Remember he said in Mark 1.38 to his disciples, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also for this purpose I have come forth. Jesus understand, understood why he was here. He was here to seek and to save those who were lost. Advancing the gospel. People need the Lord, don't they? Wow, do they ever. People need the Lord. When will we realize? When will we give our lives? People need the Lord. I admire those who I have known who just have that spirit and vision and burden about them where everywhere they go, they're thinking about the lost and how they might be able to advance the gospel. I have a quiet friend who I have known for 40 plus years, baptized him and his wife many, many years ago, spent most of his life as a truck driver, retired recently, but he has memorized scripture by the dozens and prepared his heart to be ready to witness. And then he developed a little thing that he does where he just made a bunch of pens. And on the pen that he gives out to people, he has, I suppose, his name. And uh, I have some of them at home. And he has John 3.16 written on there and a website for them to go to where they can see and hear the gospel. And so he just passes those out to people that he meets and did business with and things like that. And I thought, why didn't I think of something simple like that? It's a great way. And there are many different ways to advance the gospel. When we were in the Hibbing Church up there, it just seemed like we had to scratch for every contact we got. It was difficult to come up with people that would visit the church, very strong Catholic and Lutheran area up there in, in northern Minnesota. And I got the notion, we need to canvas our town, and we just need to knock on every door, and we need to do a little survey, and we need to talk to them, and we need to give them a tract, and we need to invite them to church. And, and uh, so we launched out on that project. I did a put up a map of the whole community there in our church foyer and we colored in the streets that we had called on and it was a two or three year project and we never got entirely finished and in fact after the first year or so I hadn't seen even one evidence of fruit and I was getting a little bit discouraged well I was getting a lot discouraged Maybe I complained to the Lord about it a little bit. I suppose I did. I remember going to a conference up there in northern Minnesota, and Dan Gillette was speaking, and he spoke on the necessity and the blessing of tears, having a heart of compassion and tears for the lost. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goes forth weeping, bearing precious seed. Those wonderful verses. And I remember going forward and, and crying and praying at the altar. 
And then a couple Sundays later, an astounding thing happened. I was greeting folks in the church foyer like every other Sunday. And all of a sudden, a bunch of people just started coming in that I'd never seen before. And before the Sunday school began, uh, we had 15 first-time visitors in Sunday school. Just out of the blue. And, you know, it's one thing if you get visitors come in for the church service, but this was for Sunday school. And I know what the message was for me. It was, look, Brother Johnston, I know where you are. I know what's going on. And I can do great and mighty things that you can't even comprehend. And I'm doing it. You're doing good, and I'm going to bless you for it, but, but just look and see what I can do. And God blesses those, I believe, who are seeking to advance the gospel, just like he blessed Ruth, who is out there gleaning in the fields, and Boaz says, hey, why don't you just drop some handfuls on purpose for her? She didn't know that. She was out there gleaning like the poor folks do, by the merciful harvesters who would leave a little bit for them, but there was a master who owned the field that said, hey, leave some handfuls on purpose for her. Do you think God can do that for us today? I believe he can, especially if we're seeking to advance the gospel. The fourth thing about Jesus was he was active in goodness. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. One verse there, Acts 10, 38, how God, Paul is preaching, actually it's Peter, to Cornelius and his household. And he says, Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. By the way, there's all three members of the Trinity, God the Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, and with power. Now he's talking about Jesus, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So another thing about Jesus was he was active in goodness. He went everywhere, and everywhere he went, he was doing good. Doing good. Uh, you say, well, that's Jesus. You know, Jesus does those kinds of things. He, he just was good. He went everywhere doing good. That's Jesus. Well, look back in chapter 9 in verse 36 and following about a regular person in the church. 9.36, at Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of what? Good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydia was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay coming to them. Then Peter rose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made 
while she was with them. Now Peter goes on and, and God miraculously through the ministry of Peter raises this woman up from the dead. But the thing that we notice about her was she was full of good works. This was just a lady in the church that was charitable, loving, kind, considerate, and she was always doing good things for other people. And that's, that's being like Jesus. In our first pastorate, I remember that one of our men worked on the square in Knoxville. And one winter day, he heard outside of the business a car spinning its wheels. This young girl had parked her car up to the curb, right into the curb, and evidently her back tire or tires were on a patch of ice, and she couldn't go forward and get it to rocking because she was right up against the curb and she was just sitting there spinning. And he heard this noise and he walked out there. And you've probably maybe seen this done or done it, but he just gave the car a gentle push. It got right off that ice and boom, she hit pavement and she was out of trouble. She rolled down her window and said, oh, thank you, thank you so much. I don't know what I would have done without you and, and Christian man from our church. And uh, she said, I, I, is there something I can do to just thank you for, for this? He said, yeah. He said, you could come to our church next Sunday. She was 17, 18 years old, uh, a beautiful girl, a, a Catholic girl in our community. And she came to church next that next Sunday and came again. And this time, one of our young fellows was sitting beside her that knew her from high school. And it wasn't more than a week or two more, and they came down the aisle, and he brought her to me and said, uh, you know, she said, I want to get saved, and, and uh, she was, and got baptized, joined the church, and I married that couple, uh, you know, after that. But it all started with a guy in our church just gently pushing her off of a little bit of ice, just doing something good just doing something good and, and then turning it into an opportunity to say something about the Lord or the church. So being active in goodness is being like Jesus and God can use it in a great and mighty way. The last thing we notice goes to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll go there and the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and he talks about how the Lord was abundant in grace to him. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who's enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, 
For this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul was blown away by God's abundant and amazing grace. He said, I was so bad. I was the chief of sinners. I hated Christ. I hated Christians. I persecuted them. I compelled them to blaspheme. I held the coats of those who stoned Stephen. I had saints arrested here and there and homes broken up and on and on. He said, but the grace of the Lord Jesus was exceedingly abundant toward me. I'm the chief of sinners and he saved me and he did it so that others would see basically if God saves Saul of Tarsus, he can save anybody. He can save me. And I'm an example of God's abundant grace. If we're going to be like Jesus, we need to be abundant in grace. Uh, I was telling Vivian a little while ago that another pastor friend of mine had a prayer that he shared with me a few years ago that really spoke to me and I try to remember it often and that is simply this, Lord, help me to love people more than I want to change them. That really struck home to me because I tend to think if people have something they need to change, they need to change it and God might use me to help them to change it. I might even help the Holy Spirit out a little bit once in a while. But I need to love people more than I want to change them. And God will use that gracious spirit of love and empathy and compassion. It's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. And it's God's amazing grace that saved John Newton and many, many others. So if you want to be like Jesus, this is what Jesus was like. He was anointed with gladness. He was acquainted with grief. He always advanced the gospel. He was active in goodness wherever he went. And he was and is abundant in grace. So I want to encourage you tonight to be like Jesus. Make that your goal because you know what? That's the Heavenly Father's goal for you. In Romans 8, we read that, didn't we? We are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. If you're a Christian tonight, you're going to be like Jesus someday. You're going to see him face to face, and you'll be immediately transformed in his presence to be like him. And I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? Being like Jesus, shed this body, shed this old nature. That'll be wonderful. But in the meantime, we are to be being conformed to the image of God's precious Son and our wonderful Savior. I started out talking about Mickey Mantle. He really lived pretty much a wasted life. But God is abundant in grace. And at his funeral, 
Every good baseball fan watched the funeral of Mickey Mantle, right? I didn't watch it live, I suppose, but I watched it. And his teammate and good friend, Bobby Richardson, who was a very strong and dedicated Christian, played second base for the Yankees back in those days as a teammate of Mickey Mantle, shared the testimony of how over the years he witnessed to Mickey, Mickey wasn't interested, but Mickey kept touch with Bobby Richardson and over the years, and then Mickey's health started turning bad and he ruined his liver with his alcoholism and I think he had a liver transplant and went through some near-death experiences and Bobby Richardson was there whenever he wanted to talk and he did accept Christ very late in his life. It was kind of like the thief on the cross experience. And Bobby Richardson tells about it in his book, Impact Player. And I just say that story because there might be somebody here tonight that thinks, you know, I'm, I'm too far gone. God can't save me. I'm, I'm, I'm worse than Saul of Tarsus and Mickey Mantle and everybody put together. Or you might just know somebody like that. Say, that person will never get saved. Who would have thought Saul of Tarsus would get saved? But he did. And his life turned 180 degrees around for the Lord. And God can save you or he can save your friend, co-worker, loved one. Because that's the kind of God he is. And we can try to be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you that he is our role model and that we are to look unto him, the author and finisher of our faith, and be like him more and more with every passing day. And someday the trumpet will sound and we will stand in his presence and we will be transformed into his very likeness. And we're so thankful for that. Help us to occupy until he comes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.